Welcome to This One Life. Today on the show, Dr. Stacy Sims. Stacy is an exercise physiologist and nutrition scientist. She has directed research programs at Stanford, AUT University, and the University of Waikato, focusing on female athlete health and performance. She's also a recognized speaker and author. Learn the surprising differences between men and women that are important for supplementation, how the industry fails to cater to these differences and fuels gender stereotypes, which common supplements are actually detrimental for women, and what the best supplements to take are. How your supplementation protocol should change according to your training style and individual characteristics such as age. And why most of the women don't get positive effects from whey protein supplementation, although they could with the right dosage. This has been a fantastic conversation, both entertaining and incredibly insightful. Enjoy. This is part one of our conversation. In part two, you'll learn when to use supplementation in general and how to use supplementation to support stress, sleep, and skin. Studies show that over 30% of Americans use some form of dietary supplements. The global market for female-specific supplements is expected to reach 50 billion by 2025. We at Freeletics have more than 15 million female users that are interested in the topic of supplementation. Yet, in mainstream media, there is little research on general supplementation efficacy, as well as how to think about tailoring supplementation to even the most rudimentary things like gender, for example. Many people are just shoveling stuff into them the first thing that they see an ad on Instagram. The last time you were on the show, you underlined that women are not just small men. There are differences between women and men when it comes to fitness that we need to take into account. Some of these differences mean that popular things like low-carb diets can be even detrimental for women. And I, before our conversation, I was worried that this might even be more the case for supplementation. To kick us off, when was the last time you got mad at the supplement industry or thought that they're doing something really detrimental? Today. <laughs> I feel like it's a regular basis. So I'm like, what? <laughs> yep. Yeah. It's an ongoing struggle to see marketing and the marketing angles people take and the words that they use to draw consumers in, knowing that what they're saying is not true. And you can find the science that shows that it's not true. And if you come out and say, hey, this is not appropriate or this is not true, most of the time people don't listen because they're drawn to the idea that this pill is a magic bullet. It's going to make them fitter, faster, leaner, somehow improve performance just by taking some kind of supplement. You want to believe, even I, who know a lot of these things, I want to believe if I see an ad and that tells me I could look better or be stronger or re recover faster, I want to believe that I just have to pop that pill and all of that is going to happen. I know. I think that's the human nature is finding the path of least resistance. So instead of putting in the hard work and then waiting for the recovery or eating real food to help with the recovery, 
people opt to get a supplement, even like with pain, people don't want to wait out pain. So they take pain pills. As soon as something starts coming on, they're like, oh, I've got a headache. Boom. There goes the ibuprofen instead of trying to figure out what it is. Oh, maybe my neck's tight. And so there's, we're just in this pill culture and the supplement culture driven primarily by pharmaceutical companies and poor marketing, but or I should say really good marketing and poor science. <laughs> when thinking about the right supplementation to get us started with a good foundational understanding, what are the main differences between men and women that you should understand? Well, it's not so much, I guess, the sex differences. It's the fact that there's no real research done on women with regards to supplementation. There's very few supplements that have any kind of robust literature or robust studies for women. And then when we're looking at defining supplements, we see the huge supplement industry, and that includes things like over-the-counter vitamins and minerals. We see that it includes all your protein powders, your pre-workouts, but even things like herbal medicines are classified as supplements. We look at um, medicinal mushrooms that people are using. All of those are included in supplements. And there's a very small amount of research, like I said, that's been done on proper supplements, which is why they're not that well regulated. And then when we need to disseminate it down to look at an active woman or a female athlete and see some of the popular sports supplements, what research has been done, there's really only four that has any research on it. So that would be beta alanine, caffeine, creatine, and beet juice or nitrates. And even on those that you just mentioned, the research is predominantly or mostly based on males? Yeah. And they've just now looked and there might be on average four or five studies for each of those supplements that have women or include women. So it's not a lot. The only one that has a, a really good in-depth amount of literature on it for both men and women is creatine. But for women, it's not about the loading and about the bodybuilding scope of, of loading the five grams three times or four times a day. It's about how do you use it for health therapy and muscle support. So it's a really small dose. We see three to five grams works really well for women. And when you start getting into the higher doses that are really popular in the bodybuilding and strength development set, women start to have really severe side effects because it's just too much. We don't have as much muscle mass as a man does. We have inherently lower creatine stores, but that doesn't mean we can actually boost it up above and beyond that 100% mark that men have. So that the dosing is also something that's in question. When you look at the research, how so for that little research that is there, how big were the differences between men and female? And as a second part of the question, independent from that research, just from your expertise, knowing how differently the female body works to the male body, what would you expect how big just generally, and I know it's a very brush, broad stroke on population level, how big yeah. will likely be the difference in how a man reacts to a supplement versus how a female reacts to a supplement? When we look at some of the really good physiological differences, so if we're looking at something, I guess all of the ones that kind of fit in there, are like your vasodilators, your ones they put in pre-workout. So you'll have beta alanine, you'll have um, carnitine, you'll have beet juice or nitrates. All of these things are supposed to enhance blood flow for muscle performance. For women, there 
I would expect something different, if not a negative effect. And that's what the research is showing, especially for beet juice, that women who are naturally cycling, they still have estrogen and progesterone on a regular basis. If they use beet juice or nitrates, it actually reduces their aerobic capacity and their aerobic performance because estrogen is super tightly tied to the nitric oxide cycle, especially within blood vessels. So your body is really relying on natural feedback. So if you're introducing beet juice and the nitrates, it interferes with natural mechanisms. So you don't end up with the vasodilation constriction response that you want for improved muscle performance. You end up with too much vasodilation, which kind of makes it lax and you don't get as much economy of movement from the muscle because it's just not responding the way it should. But when you get to postmenopausal women, so women who have stopped cycling, it works for them because they don't have estrogen that plays with the um, integrity of the blood vessels. So then it's okay. I can understand that from my point of view, knowing how blood vessels are activated and respond. But to the general person, they read literature about, hey, nitrates improve your exercise performance and I'm going to go to the gym and I want to do this box fit class and I want to be able to have some endurance. So I'm going to use some beet juice. I see it a lot in endurance races too. People are shooting back beet juice right before start. And I'm like, yeah, you don't want to do that as a woman. You really don't. And then things like beta alanine too. That's another one that is directly related to muscle muscle performance. And it's a little bit of a vasodilator, but it's also a buffer with when we're talking about anaerobic performance. We see that there is some benefit in women, but the magnitude of benefit is small as compared to what happens with men. Like men will use it and they'll have, you know, an eight to 15, depending on what study you're looking at, eight to 15% improvement in anaerobic capacity. But for women, it might be a 2%. So is it really the supplement that's doing it? Or is it the fact that they are cued into the fact they're being tested in this research study and that's why they got the extra 2%. So there's lots of little things in there where you're like, okay, but marketing is going to take that 15% and throw it out there and be like, you want 15% better anaerobic performance. You better start using beta alanine. And it doesn't hold water when you're starting to look at what it does for women versus what it does for men. As a man, I don't get targeted by female specific ads in, in, in my social accounts, but it doesn't seem to me from the outside that the industry is transparent about these things or cares about this? No, it's all money-driven. There's a few um, industry uh, websites and industry newsletters like Nutra Ingredients, talking about all the new fantastic um, ingredients that are coming out and what ones are getting good uptake into food products or supplement products. And you try to read the research, but they're all white papers. So that means they're not been peer-reviewed. Methodology isn't really explained well. So you're like, is this really just someone who wrote a report based on two people? Or is it really a scientifically well-controlled study that's been written up and not written up very well? And so they'll take little snippets out of these white papers and throw it into the marketing. And then all of a sudden it's a new fantastic thing and everyone has to have it because it's driven by dollars, the bottom line dollars. That's why the industry is $15 billion because it's just so much about perception. And someone said, this is going to work for me and I take it and I think it works for me. So I'm going to keep buying it. There could also be a, a small part of the placebo effect, but we might get into that topic later on. Before doing that, are there any other products that you are aware of that not even might not have 
any real effect for women, but could be detrimental, but are commonly advertised in the supplement industry? Other than beet juice, nothing that's really adverse. When we're looking at specificity around dosing, we can look at whey protein. And there was a study that came out just a couple of weeks ago where we know that the 20 gram dose doesn't do much for women, like I said on the other show. And they looked at 15 gram to see, oh, maybe we needed a lower dosage for a target. And then they went up to 30 and 60. Didn't see any kind of real magnitude of change for muscle protein synthesis until you hit that 30 gram mark. So for women who are doing strength training and they want to extend the amount of time their bodies are producing muscle, they need to have minimum of 30 grams of equivalent whey protein isolate after a training session. But for men, you get the same thing with 20 grams. So then it's a dosing thing where everyone's, oh, 20 grams, drink chocolate milk or use whey protein for 20 grams. Women won't get the same benefit. It's not detrimental but it doesn't give them the same magnitude effect and benefit as it does for men on that 20 gram dose. That's a very interesting, that's a very interesting fact, extremely practically helpful. When we are on the topic of protein, as a quick side question here, what, what do you think is an appropriate recommendation for protein intake per kilogram body weight for a moderately active to active female? 1.8 to 2.2 grams per kilo. 1.82.2 because recommendations all over the place when you when you start researching depending on if you find that the first thing you type into Google is actually research or if you want to go deeper into actually peer reviewed studies okay 1.82.2 <laughs> are there any do you have any stories about where you really helped somebody get off a whole bunch of useless subs or maybe even one or two of those examples where you found those to be de detrimental. How are those people? How do they react to this? Why did they get into this? I, I take all of these kind of supplement supplements. Yeah, almost uh, every day or every other day occurrence for me where people will be like, <clears throat> I'm taking on these supplements because I'm having issues sleeping or I want to increase my energy or I want to increase my lean mass. And you see this long line of supplements that they're taking. And a lot of them do the same thing. I was like, why are you taking tart cherry juice with L-theanine and magnesium and ashwagandha when all of these things all do the same thing to improve sleep? We really only need one. And the one that has the most research and efficacy behind it is L-theanine. And they're like, oh, I didn't know that because they're looking at the marketing for all of them. They all say something a little bit different with a common theme being sleep. So when you're like really trying to disseminate I always ask people, why are you taking these supplements? What is it? Why do you think you need to take it? Most people don't know why they are taking it. Most people assume that they're supposed to be taking iron for women, iron every day, magnesium every day, vitamin D every day, because somewhere along the line, they've heard that they're going to get become anemic, that they need vitamin D because it helps with immune support and they might be entering winter. They need to take magnesium to help with sleep and muscle cramping. And when you really disseminate it down, if you're going to be taking it, for example, if you're going to be taking iron, you need to understand that if you take too much iron, you're going to end up with the same symptomology as too little iron. So you, before you start taking iron supplementation, you need to get your bloods tested and see, are you iron deficient? Are you iron deficient with anemia or you have low ferritin? What is it? If you don't have any of those things, then there's no reason to take iron. 
If you're on the very low end of normal, then maybe you are on too low of a range for you being active. So then we look at, okay, let's supplement every other day or every two days so that you don't get too much iron at one time because then your body stops absorbing it. And then we start looking at things like vitamin D and you can buy vitamin D in 2000 and 5,000 and 10,000 international units. And the benchmark, most people are going to go for the higher number because that's what we've all been pushed to do. Higher means better. But I'm always like, let's look at the lowest effective dose because we don't want toxicity. You're going to rarely find a food that has 10,000 international units of vitamin D. So when we're looking at toxicity, really easy to get in toxicity when you're taking vitamins and minerals over the counter. So when you start explaining it and going, okay, so why are you taking this thing? How much are you taking? What are you expecting from it? Then they start backpedaling going, oh, maybe I don't need to be using all of this, or maybe I should be cycling it through and maybe I'll use ashwagandha for two weeks and then I'll use L-theanine for two weeks and see which one works better. So it's just instead of having everyone who comes to you and says, I'm using these supplements, it's more, let's have a plan look at symptomology. So it's more that personalized medicine approach, which is completely lacking in the supplement industry because people are like, take all of this all at once. To try to summarize this and get our listeners a little bit of guidance here, is there, so I've understood that a lot within supplementation has to come down to you specifically. What do you need and also what dosage do you, do you need? Before diving into that topic, maybe a little bit deeper, are there supplements where you would say, hey, for really on population level, generally speaking, an, an active female should or should is maybe the wrong word, but would benefit from taking these supplements in an average dose dosage? Yeah, so I'm always about creatine. For the average woman, taking that three to five grams of creatine helps with the brain health, gut health, heart health, and muscular performance. And across the board, women don't necessarily eat enough of calories, full stop, but eat enough animal products to help build more of that creatine. And we have more and more women who are vegetarian or vegans and men too. And there are no food sources for creatine when you are a vegetarian or a vegan because it just comes from meat products. When we're looking on a population basis, women will definitely benefit from that low dosage of creatine monohydrate. The second one, even though I've bashed it already, but the second one is vitamin D. Especially if you suffer from things like premenstrual syndrome or really bad menstrual cramping and you're getting into winter. So this is a seasonal thing. So for the Northern Hemisphere, that's now towards the end of October and getting ready to get into the darker days, even though you guys are still having some nice heat, just be aware that you might need to boost up vitamin D. And then for people in the Southern Hemisphere, because the sun is so incredibly intense in the summer and people are using sunscreen and hats and clothes to keep from being sunburned, they end up vitamin deficient or vitamin D deficient because they don't get enough sun exposure. So, you know, taking that lowest effective dose, but if you can get your blood tested first to see if you're too low in vitamin D, otherwise then you want to look for that 1,000 to 2,000 international units, not the 10,000. Any other supplements that would be on that list? 
For the active woman, not to be afraid to supplement with clean protein powders because they're relatively innocuous and they do definitely benefit and help get you up to that 1.8 to 2.2 grams per kilo. If you're above the, at or above the 30 gram dosage. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And there's been some really good research that's come out of Florida with Jose San Antonio's lab, where they've had women on 3.5 grams per kilo, and there's been no adverse effects at all with regards to bone or kidney. And they were able to put on morning mass, get stronger and strip down body fat. So for women who are specific to strength and bodybuilding or physique building, they shouldn't be afraid to go above that 2.2. Creatine feels for me mostly as a supplement advertised to males in order to get more buff in the gym. I know it is. That's the marketing because things are very gendered in the nutrition and supplement industry. So you'll see the muscle building products and the sexual function products that are all like marketed to men. And you have all the weight loss type products that are all marketed to women. And we've seen research that comes out that households that are headed by women or a woman and a man tend to spend more money on weight loss or households that are predominantly um, run by men. Most of the money and supplementation goes into muscle building some sexual function, but primarily muscle building stuff. And then those that are just female oriented is all weight loss stuff. And there's never a deviation from those three across countries. So it's really interesting how strong marketing is and the social messages that women need to be smaller. So they need to take these things to make them smaller and fit into the gym or fit into society where the opposite is for men where we want you to build muscle and take up space and be big in the gym and big in society. And it just, this is why I get mad at the industry almost every day. <laughs> I, I, I can so much feel this also when it comes to protein, this shifts a little bit. So I think on protein where we are a bit further down the line where this is also being advertised more to women, maybe also sometimes for the wrong reasons, because it's more take this protein instead of eating something else so that you lose weight, which is then also not the right angle to look at the whole thing. But at least it is somewhat targeted or advertised to women. Creatine, I do feel that this is still a mostly man thing. And on vitamin yeah. D, it's so interesting. You alluded to that and that's right. If you can get your blood tested, then ideally get your blood and then ideally do that. Although even there, sometimes I do have the feeling that the, at least in Germany, the record, the like from a doctor recommended level of vitamin D in your blood is very low, but generally speaking for here in, in a study N equals one with my wife, when I have that discussion with her about vitamin D as because she's not sure about how much she should take and how high her levels are, she always errs on the side of not taking anything is. Oh. Yeah, no, especially when you are in the northern parts of European winter, then it really is beneficial for her to use at least that 2,000 international units, definitely not above 5,000, but 2,000 during the winter because it helps with mood, it helps with circadian rhythms, helps with immune system, 
helps with muscle function. There's so many new things that are coming out about the efficacy of vitamin D and the links between different hormonal issues as well for women that has to do with vitamin D. So it goes beyond just you need it from the sun or take it as a supplement. It is more about managing some of the really deep, dark things that happen in winter, both for men and women. But we see a lot of mood disorder, especially in women, when you start getting into the darker months of the year. Do you have any idea how that is for children? Just through food. They, because kids are very picky, they can sometimes get into some um, deficiencies, but not enough to warrant an over-the-counter supplement. So if you are like, oh, my, my daughter is really irritable and doesn't have a lot of energy and is having all these issues, maybe we should increase vitamin D. You can look for food sources of vitamin D mushrooms, but kids don't like mushrooms unless it's chopped up on a pizza or something like that. But it doesn't take much. There's lots of vitamin D fortified foods too. I don't know so much about the regulation in Europe, but in the States and here you can get vitamin D fortified milk that has different ranges of the fat percentage because they're trying to push vitamin D into kids to prevent deficiencies. So there's ways of doing it through food rather than supplementation per se for kids. The reason I was asking was that at least in Germany, when kids are smaller, so my daughter's two and a half now, um, when she was smaller, I think it was in the first year, I don't want to misstate this year, but I think in the first year, they um, get a very high dosage of vitamin D, which is prescribed by the doctors and it's basically standard to take that. And then after the first year or so, it just drops to zero. So you don't give them any vitamin D at all. And just when we talked about this now, I was thinking or making a mental note that I would love to get my daughter tested. But then again, it's who do I go to to test this? Sometimes I don't trust the general medical recommendations just because these general medical recommendations also there's certain political reasons for some of them. So some of them are some of them are just also philosophically or biased towards giving the lowest the lowest recommendation and so on and so forth. But okay, that's a different topic. Yeah, but what I do is I look at the different country recommendations. I also go to the World Health Organization website for really specific vitamins and, and minerals like iron, like vitamin D, vitamin C, some of the really critical ones where if you have fussy kids you don't eat or you're living somewhere where there is food poverty with regards to not having availability of certain fresh fruit and veg, then you get the blood tested and you can go do a little bit of sleuthing around and be like, okay, we see that in the States, the recommended daily allowance is this, but in Germany, it's that, but the who recommends this. I'd always go with World Health Organization recommendations. That's a good tip. Thank you. Yeah. I just put down a note to get my daughter tested and check this out before to form an opinion where she should be. When it comes now back to supplementation um, for women, <laughs> when it comes to more of the individual factors of a person, training goals, type of exercising, other individual characteristics, definitely pre and after menopause, what are the main things that make sense to specifically cater your supplementation towards? Yeah, we look at age. For one thing, so we know that peri and postmenopausal women need more help with building lean mass. So we look at increasing protein and creatine around there for mood and muscle. 
Also looking at bone density, bone strength. So if we're not doing plyometric work, making sure there's food with calcium and vitamin D. But when we're looking from a performance standpoint, I take the individual approach and, and I say, okay, what training block are we in? Are we in a base training block where we're just trying to build strength and aerobic conditioning? We don't really need supplementation because we want our body to adapt without supplementation. Because supplementation is like the icing on the cake, so to speak. If we're in a really heavy power and strength phase, then we want to be able to support that heavy and power development and strength development. So this is where we would look to using some beta alanine or maybe some bicarb when we're doing supersets. Or if we're doing sprint work for endurance, then one of the things I have my cyclists do is if they're doing VO2 reps or high intensity reps, that they have a, a bottle that has sodium citrate and sodium bicarbonate in it. Because those are two buffers for lactic acid as well as the aerobics capacity. So they're able to get more out of the second half of their training. And that's what we're trying to do. So you can use supplements strategically if you know what the training block is and what the end goal is. And not just blanket, let's take this all year. And this is why we're like, okay, as the individual, we know on a whole that in we can look at menstrual cycle phase, hormonal contraception, where the inflammatory responses are, when we should be using more turmeric and anti-inflammatory type foods and where we can use more fish oil and magnesium and where vitamin D fits in that. But from a performance standpoint, we definitely want to look at the sport and the training block and when you need to be ready for what you're doing. This is part one of our conversation. In part two, you'll learn when to use supplementation in general and how to use supplementation to support stress, sleep, and skin. Thank you for listening to the show. I would love to get your comments, suggestions, and feedback. Also, if there's a special topic you would like me to address or someone specific you'd love to see on the show. If you want to support me, please hit the subscribe button and leave me a rating. I hope you will listen in again on the next show. Until then, all the best.